Let's pray. Heal us, O Lord. Guide us into your presence and love us. Amen. You're not crazy. And you're not alone, Jesus said to the man. And then he healed him of his demons. That does not mean the man's life was instantly restored. It's not like he got his job back and the family let him move back into the house and his debts were forgiven and all the crazy stuff he'd done was both forgiven and forgotten. People do not forgive or forget easily. And so this man healed of his demons, started the long journey of re-earning everyone's respect, mending the broken fences, and putting his life back together again. But he did so knowing that he was not crazy and he wasn't alone. So do you have any demons? I've told you that I've given mine silly names like Little Bunny Foo-Foo because it's really hard to be afraid of a demon whose name is Foo-Foo. When someone asks me what a demon is, it's not an easy answer. There are the biblical demons, the devil's minions. They're very real. But demons come in other forms. And whether such things as addiction, abuse, violent anger, and the seven deadly sins have an actual demon attached to them, I don't know. But I do know they're just as dangerous and just as deadly. All of us are addicts. Over the past year, we've discovered a lot of things that we were addicted to, things that when we were not allowed to do them made us anxious, overwhelmed, depressed, maybe even caused us to act out. By the way, before we list all addictions as bad, we need to realize that there are some things that it's okay to be addicted to. Have you ever tried to give up air, food, or water? I tried to give up air once, Turns out I'm highly addicted to it, which is why my two-minute and eight-second attempt at breaking free did not succeed, for which I'm grateful. One of the biggest challenges of demons in our world is not that they turn us into legions who, according to St. Mark chapter 5, lived in the tombs, could not be restrained even with chains, was too strong for anyone to subdue, and night and day cried out among the tombs and the mountains, cutting himself with stones. Nor will they turn us into the boy in Matthew 17 who had seizures and suffered severely and fell into the fire and the water often. Such individuals need Jesus. They also need dedicated and professional mental health workers who I am thankful are there to work with them and to love them. But you know, most of us are never going to see those extremes in our lives. The demons most dangerous to us are the ones that allow us to maintain a job, a, fa a, a family, a social life, such as they might be, by bending us just enough that we are still tolerable by most people's social standards. But we're still hurting ourselves, and we're still hurting other people. But as long as we look normal or almost normal on the outside, we can get away with it. You've heard me use the phrase from Bolsinger's book, Canoeing the Mountains, people do not resist change per se. People resist loss, which is why people make radical changes to their beliefs or their life. But they don't want to give up who they were or what they were. The world is filled with churches that aren't even close to what the sign on the front lawn says. They have radically changed both their theology and their practice. But they still insist that they are whatever denomination they once were because it provides a sense of normalcy, even though they are not even close to being normal anymore. We do the same thing as individuals. We make changes, sometimes big changes. And then we tell everybody, I don't want you to see me or treat me any differently than you did. Except 
that it's hard not to see them or treat them differently because they are different. Perhaps the biggest challenge within the church is determining whether this difference has led us closer to God or further away from God. In the 1600s, there was a woman named Hannah Allen. She was medically diagnosed as, and I quote, spiritually insane. Spiritual insanity. And yet her writings about her struggle show that she had a greater faith than most of the pastors of her day. In the 1500s, Luther was called a heretic for wanting to get back to the Bible as the foundation for faith. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, think of all the individuals in the last 50 years who claimed to be godly leaders and told everyone, you need to do what I'm doing, even though their lives and their words were very, very unbiblical. Everyone struggles with some form of self-doubt. Who do we think we are? What do we know about God, about faith, about the church? What could we possibly teach anyone or share with anyone? And even though confirmation taught us how to tell the difference between those who would lead us closer to God and those who would lead us further away, we often feel inadequate and unqualified to make such decisions, and so our fears and our anxieties are multiplied. This can cause us to either sink into depression or cover up our fear and anxiety by boldly and defiantly telling everybody we're okay. In fact, we're going to tell them how to live. Unfortunately, we often discover the people we want to turn to for support and guidance don't understand our experiences, our emotions, our thought processes. Our insecurity gets reinforced by individuals who, most likely just as insecure as we are, pretend they aren't insecure. And they tell us what we need to do, which, by the way, allows them to put off taking care of themselves and doing what they need to do for themselves. A vicious cycle is perpetuated. That's what the epistle lesson is all about. These people often mean well, but they aren't really helping themselves or anyone else. Which is why St. Paul warns us not to let our strength, whether it's real or imagined, destroy someone else who might be weak. When your community, identity, and sense of purpose is intertwined with your faith, challenges and changes to your faith wreak havoc on your public and your private relationships, which in turn affects your spiritual and emotional health. The church should be a source of healing, but when the church, and that includes the people within the church, don't know what to do, the awkwardness is felt on both sides. And the one who is lost and in need of healing becomes even more lost and in need. And the chasm of healing gets wider and wider. So how do we be like Jesus? Jesus wasn't afraid of individuals who were broken. He didn't avoid them. He didn't make fun of them. How do we do what he did? Well, first we have to acknowledge that we have limitations because we're not Jesus. As much as we would like to cast out demons and heal people with a little spit mud in a few words, most of us don't have that ability. We can't say, take up your mat and walk, or open your eyes and see, or rise from the dead, or, you know, those nasty demons aren't going to bother you anymore because I sent them into that herd of pigs over there. Secondly, if we were to find hope, it's in the words, Jesus taught as one with authority. Now, regardless of what or who our demons are, we've got them. Denying it isn't going to help. Even being sarcastic isn't going to help. Martin Luther once said, whoever drinks beer is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. You know, I still don't know if he was kidding or not. I know he loved his beer, but I also know that he knew that it's Jesus and not beer that gets us into heaven. By the way, if you've ever heard the phrase, everything in moderation, 
To the best of our knowledge, it was first said by the Roman comic Plautus, who lived around 220 BC. And although his version is a little longer, moderation in all things is the best policy, it still isn't quite right. You see, even moderation doesn't solve the problem because being moderately depressed or moderately anxious, while better, is still being depressed and anxious. So when it comes to being like Jesus, I'm interested not just in matters of faith and doctrine, but how these things are lived out among God's people. Knowledge is only good if it's applied. The Bible's admonition of speaking the truth in love is still the best advice that we can get. A seminary degree doesn't make you a jerk, but it's a really good start if you aren't careful. You see, on my best days, I'm able to speak of God and how he's at work in the world and specifically how he's at work in my life. What is often overlooked in the church is that you, no matter who you are, you also are able to speak of how God is at work in the world and more specifically how he is at work in your life. You see, I'm not able to speak about God because I'm a pastor. I'm able to speak about God for the same reason that you are able to speak about God. We are followers of Jesus. Jesus has promised to work in and through us, through his word, through his spirit, to guide and direct us because his commission was to go and make disciples of all nations. And the only way that we can do that is by sharing his love with others. Now, the people who have taught me the most were not pastors. They were students of life. And when they taught, it was often not their successes, but their failures that I learned the most from. See, I learned the most when their willingness to share their failures and their openness to discuss made the difference. It has taught me the people you want to spend the most time with are the ones who treat you with respect, openness, and humbleness, and who accept you for who you are. And then they ask that you treat them the same way. An important note, accepting someone for who they are does not require you to accept their demons or any of the other things that should not be acceptable. You see, Jesus spent time with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. That had to be kind of hard for the guy who said, I am the resurrection. He spent time with the Pharisees who said, you know what, you get to God by being perfect, which surely wasn't easy for the one who said, no one comes to the Father except through me, and it's an issue of grace, not perfection. The woman at the well, the man called Legion, the rich young ruler, his own hometown, Jesus was willing to sit with them and talk with them, even though they held very different ideas about God and life. You know, I love the question almost all the demons ask Jesus when he shows up. What do you want with us? Such an egotistical attitude. Jesus actually doesn't want anything with them. <laughs> the only reason he even noticed them is because they're hurting someone he loves. Jesus looks past the demons to the person. He doesn't allow the craziness, anxiety, depression, or destruction these demons have wrought to define that person. You see, Jesus knows who that person really is. In Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there is any anxious thoughts in me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then the words that appear after it, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. King David was king. And there are few people in history who had what he had. And yet anxiety, fear, and depression were all a part of his life. What held him together was knowing that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. See, to acknowledge your demons, your pain, your fears, your anxiety, your depression, to own it, not as a badge of honor or as an excuse. So, well, you know, you just got to let me do what I do. But an honest evaluation of who you are, that's always the first step toward healing. 
You see, when we think about the sin and shame and guilt and pain all around us, and especially in us, if we can believe there are demons out there who want to rip our faith from us, then we can either give in or we can hold fast. A long time ago, in a class filled with minds who assumed they were brilliant, someone asked the professor, is it possible for demons to take over the life of a believer? Most of us brilliantly minded almost pastors already knew the answer. There is no way a believer could ever be taken over by a demon. Then came the awkward silence by the professor. It's probably only 10 or 15 seconds, but it seemed like hours to us. You see, why didn't he just say no way? So that we could cheer and give each other a high five and move on to the next question. Do you know why it took the professor a few minutes to answer? I'm not crazy and I'm not alone. But the wounded parts of me, whether inflicted by my sin or the sin of others, either paralyze me because I'm afraid to take a step in any direction or keep me in motion because I think that I've got to make up for them or at least try to make up for all the things I've done wrong. And I feel like I have to convince myself, and most importantly, I have to convince everybody else around me that I'm okay, even if I know I'm not. How many novels and movies where we learned a character's behavior was related to their past, and once they found someone who loved them, truly loved them for everything they are, gets them to have one of those storybook happily ever after endings. And as we close the book or turn off the TV, we say, wow, that's great. I wish I had somebody who loved me even though I'm broken. You see, we do. Being known and loved and forgiven by God is what healed the man in our gospel. It's also what healed the man named Legion and the woman at the well and St. Paul and St. Peter and everybody else who got healed in the, in the scriptures. God sees you and he loves you. Not the you you want to be, not the you you try to be, not the you you pretend to be, but you. And even in the lowest point of your life, the deepest wound, the vilest sin, the damage done, the cross of Christ reaches down through the centuries and says, you are not crazy and you are not alone. The compassion of God has found you. On Good Friday, there is so much suffering and pain and hurt and sin. And yet there are nine words that are worse than all of the rest of that combined. It's those nine words when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when I always cry. As he brings all sin from all time, from all people into one place at one time, his Father in heaven had to turn his face. Not out of shame, but out of pain. And for a moment, the first and the only one in all eternity, Jesus did not have his Father in heaven beside him. But that's when I remember his mother and the other Mary and John at the foot of the cross. You see, when the rest of the world abandoned him, they did not. And so he was not alone. And despite what the world might have said, we know he wasn't crazy. You see, wherever you are in your life right now, whether you've given your demons silly names or aren't even sure what they are, you aren't crazy and you aren't alone. I want to close with a couple of quotes from Henry Nouwen. By the way, if you have never read any of Henry Nouwen's books, especially Wounded Healer and some of the others, trust me, they're worth reading, especially in times like this. Henry said, you have to acknowledge where you are and affirm that place. You have to be willing to live your loneliness, your incompleteness, your lack of total incarnation fearlessly and trust that God will give you the people to keep showing you the truth 
of who you really are. And then he says, if you are where God wants you to be, God will hold you safe and give you peace, even when there is pain. I cannot take away the pain or the anxiety or the depression, but I can remind you of a Jesus who already has. Hold tightly to him. Never let him go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.